All righty. Uh, let's uh, start the PowerPoint here. While I'm doing this, you can turn to Colossians. Uh, for those of you that are new, we've just started a verse-by-verse study of Colossians. And uh, we're glad you're here to... We're glad that you're here to join us. My computer was just talking. It's always weird when your computer starts talking to you. You know, it's kind of like, what did I do? Okay, so let's share the screen here. And uh, Drew, thanks for making the screen look good there. Okay, and we have got it. Okay, Colossians chapter 1. This book exists to prove to you and me that there is no one like Jesus. That's very cliche. If you've been in the church for a while, if you've been a Christian for a while, of course, we know Jesus. You know, we've learned that from Sunday school, right? He's, he's great. He's awesome. But, but not just as a, a childhood sort of superhero figure, as, as adults, as, as young adults, we have to come to believe that and live in light of it every day of our life. And the reason is not necessarily that we're not intellectually convinced. If we went around the room here, you'd probably say, well, of course, Jesus is God's son and he's important. And yes, he, he ought to. But, but here's what's going to happen. Uh, this afternoon, as you're driving home from church and as you settle into whatever Sunday afternoon looks like in your house, you're going to have things arise that compete with Jesus having first place in your life. Uh, let, let just... This last week, was there something that competed with Jesus having first place in your life? Just raise your hand. Was there something that was distracting you or competing? with? Okay, that's probably true for all of us. So we need this book, not because intellectually we aren't convinced. Maybe some of us are still trying to be convinced by that. But regardless, we need to keep this in front of us and recognize that, that, that to, to call Jesus Lord means he ought to have the primary functional influence in everything we do. And not like, oh, you know, every time, you know, you want to do something, Jesus is there to swat your hand. No, you can't do that. Not like a rule book, but but like, this is my Savior, and, and this is the one I want to honor and please. He he lived for me, right? He, he died for me. He rose again for me, and I want to live for him in response to that. You ever, you ever seen... You ever seen a new couple, right? And they're just getting to date, and then maybe they get engaged, and you know what they're like, right? They're falling over, over. They're they're not thinking about their school. They're not thinking about their work. They're not thinking about whether uh, the Rangers won the night before. I mean, they might be, but they're just so entranced with one another. And, and, uh, that, that's an imperfect analogy, but, but it, it in a way, it, it captures the, the focus and the intention of, of what we need to be like in a walk with God, that, that we are consumed with Christ and always thinking about how, uh, He ought to influence what we do. So that, that's the argument of Colossians. Colossians is going to say, I want to prove this to you. And you'll remember the background of this is that the Colossian Christians are dealing with people coming into the church this is before Facebook and before Twitter and before Fox News, but they had sources of information and people of influence coming in saying, you know what, Jesus is great, right? But but you need this also. Here here's here's the secret to spiritual success. 
here's the next fad. Here's the next secret. And, uh, and we have these today as well. And as we get into chapter two in the coming weeks of Colossians, I want to talk to you about some of the specific things that I believe are distracting our church today from Jesus. Okay. But, but all in due time. Last time we talked about the priority of prayer. Did you remember that? As Paul launches, look at chapter one, verse one, as he, as he launches into his letter to the Colossian Christians, uh, he says in verse three that we, we give thanks to God, always praying for you because we've heard of your faith and your love. And, and then in verses nine to twelve, we looked at last time, he allows us to eavesdrop on the prayer that he's been giving to God on behalf of the Colossians. And, and it just reminds us about the priority and the importance of prayer in, in terms of our lives. In fact, in chapter 1, it starts with prayer. At the very end of the book, in chapter uh, uh, 4, as we get to the end of the book here, that'll be later on this summer, he's going to say in chapter 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. He's going to talk to us about Epaphras, who is always earnestly laboring in his prayers. So, so this book is, the, the bookends of Colossians is prayer and prayer. And uh, that just reminds us that we ought to be praying. By the way, I meant to say this last week and I forgot. Uh, how many of you um, are familiar with these? Anybody familiar with those apps? Uh, there's an app for that, right? That, that's, there's an app for everything. And if you are floundering in your prayer life, if you need some structure, you need a tool, uh, something to keep track of prayer requests, something to nag you that you ought to be praying, right? Fox News already does that on your phone. Uh, you, you get, you, you do, right? You know, if there's something going on in ESPN, if there's something going on in CNN, if there's some, you know, someone posts something about you on Facebook, your phone nags you about all those things, right? Well, well, why not, you know, turn those things off or limit those things and put an app on your phone that's going to remind you to pray for that person who was going into surgery that day or that person you wanted to follow up with this week or, or that family member, right? And so these are apps that will help you to do that. Um, obviously, you don't, you don't need to use these. Um, I, I like to use just a more traditional means, but uh, PrayerMate's really good. Uh, prayer minder, prayer notes, echo. Um, some of these are are uh, free. Some of them are paid services. But um, guys, we, we live in such a great a great time, don't we? You have Bibles on your phones right now. You have access to sermons. You have apps like this that can help you to be more faithful. So um, if you're like, hey, I, I need to make a change in my prayer life because I'm not, do-, th- then consider a, a tool like this as something to help you. Okay. How many of you use one of these? Just raise your hand. I'm, I'm really curious. Nobody uses any apps. Why? Do you all have dumb phones? Or do you just have... Um, okay, well, I, that's great. Uh, how, how many... Okay, so how many of you use something to help you pray? A journal, a notebook? Okay, okay, that, that's cool. That's great. Um, how many of you would be willing to share... Well, we won't do that right now. But um, if, if you need help, raise your hand again. If you use a journal, you have a system, wait, raise your hand again, Okay. So if you need help, look at the pe- keep your hands up. L- look at the people that have their hands up. Okay, maybe just go talk to one of them. Maybe one of them is your friend already, and say, "Hey, what are you doing? Help me." Um, I'll tell you right now. I- I'm a pastor. If if I just sit down and close close my eyes and try to pray, I think of a thousand other things. I think of that thing I haven't been able to think about for a week that my wife wanted me to do. Right? It's like, oh, and right. 
the devil will hang out in your prayer life if you let him. So you have to do things to stay focused. And so I have a journal and I have my eyes open and I work through my journal and that helps me to stay focused on that. So, um, but whatever works for you, but uh, here's some apps to consider if, if you need some help. Okay, so we're coming now to um, the person and work of Christ. And uh, actually those verse references are off. We're going to look at verse verses 13 and following today. Okay, so let's start just by reading this section and then uh, we're going to let Paul launch us into... Uh, the wonderful attributes and work of Christ. Verse 13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself, here it is, will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Wow, that's that's got a lot, a lot of really good stuff in it. So let's jump in here. The first thing I want you to see, and this is not in your notes, but, but I want you to just pay attention to this, okay? There is an arrangement of the material here that is significant. Um, you, you guys know that a good song uses rhyme sometime or uh, repetitive words or repeated phrases, right? There, there's an artistry to literature. And some of you English majors out there could could wax eloquent on all the different ways that, that writers try to uh, do things in their writing to enhance uh, the quality of what they're doing or make things memorable or insightful or vivid. Well, you probably can't see it if you look at your Bible where it says Colossians, but Paul does something here that is very apparent if you were to look at it in the Greek text, which was the original language he wrote it in, but but is not as obvious to us. And that is he arranges his material in a specific way. And you'll notice on the screen there, he starts off with the works of Christ in verses 13 to 14, he concludes with the works of Christ, meaning what did he come to do, verses 20 to 22. And right in the middle, verses 15 to 19, he talks about the, the nature of Jesus, his person, his character. And you say, well, why does he do that? It's, it's a way of drawing an arrow. Uh, I, I would say, you know, if Paul had the opportunity, he, he would put neon lights around that middle section to highlight that what Paul wants us to see is the nature of who Jesus truly is. It's, listen, it's because he is who he is that he's qualified to do what he does. So his person leads then to his work of redemption and reconciliation. So Paul's just, he's just playing with the word order here. He rearranges the word order to put that highlighted, you know, spotlight of influence on the character, 
and person of Jesus. Okay, so that's just for free. I want you to see that. Uh, you say, what do I write in my notes? Just say that 15 to 19 is really where the spotlight shines in regard to how Paul writes this. Okay, now what he's going to call us to do here really is is this thing called meditation. Now, I don't know how you are. I don't meditate so good. I really don't. Um, we are such an active culture that stopping and thinking is really hard to do. Okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna ask I'm gonna ask you if this is a test. Okay, let's say you go to the doctor's office and you're in a waiting room. And do you remember what we used to do in, in doctor's offices? Remember what we used? To, some some of you kids, you don't remember this at all, right? Remember what we used to do? We might talk to the person next to us. Radical stuff like this, right? We might pull a magazine. Remember doctor's offices used to have magazines in them? Remember that, Brian, right? And, uh, and Doc's saying that. And now what do we do? We get two seconds. Someone gets up to get something to drink from the refrigerator. And what are we, what are we doing? Bing! And I'm, right? And that's what, we do not do meditation very well. It's like we're, 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 we've trained ourselves in a moment of not having an activity to go to the phone. Now, now am I the only one that, that's afflicted with this disease? Um, in fact, I do, th- I do this. You're going to laugh at me. I, I, if I'm at home, I try to just like leave it there. It's like, not going to look. You know, I'm just, you just, you have to do that and you get to detox from this thing, right? So, so meditation requires that this is off and, and I'm focused in thinking about the subject at hand. Now, Christians of old struggled with this too, not because they had smartphones, but, but, but this is not a new problem. So, so like uh, one of my historic figures, uh, John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, you know what he would do when he wanted to meditate? He'd go for a walk. Right? Uh, you know what my wife does when, when she's thinking about her Bible reading and whatnot? She does her hair. She's like doing her hair in the morning. She's got her Bible there and she's reading and she's thinking and praying. So you can you can meditate while you engage in other activities that don't require a lot of brain power. And sometimes that helps you to focus. Uh, how many of you have a commute in the morning? You got a commute? Okay. Uh, you, you, can, you can listen to a podcast. You can listen to the radio. Or you can turn those things off. And you can think about on the way to work what you read in your Bible that morning. Or, or maybe you, you turn on your, your Bible audio right there and you listen to it on the way up. And then you, you hit pause and, and then you think about what you're learning. So, so sometimes that can help us with meditation. But, but, but the point is we need to work on this. And uh, this is the content, though, of what we want to be thinking about and, and meditating on. Okay, So watch this. The first thing he's going to talk about is the Father's rescue plan. Right? The works of Christ, the Father's rescue plan. Look back at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, now watch this. Watch this. He's going to launch, man. I mean, he, he's going to hit go on all five of the rocket engines of the work of Christ here. And he is going to lift off into this incredible overview of what Jesus came to do. Okay, remember he's arguing Jesus ought to have first place, and you're saying, why? Why should he have first place? Okay, so so watch this. This is amazing. Number one, the Father's rescue plan. He came first of all to rescue us in regard to the kingdom. The, the, the Bible's message is humanity needs rescue. That's what it says there, verse twelve or verse thirteen. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. 
The Bible teaches that when you and I come into the world, we do not belong to the kingdom of God. And this this is shocking to a lot of people, especially here in the south where we live, because we're all God's children, right? Well, yes, that's true in the sense, in the sense that God made every person, right? He is our creator. He is the one who made all people. But the Bible's message is even though God made all of us, we do not belong in his kingdom. We are not resident in his family. And and we know, we're going to see here in a minute, that's because humanity rebelled against God. And when that sinful rebellion occurred, we were uh, broken or alienated in regard to our fellowship with God. And we became a part of what the Bible calls the kingdom of darkness. You say, that doesn't sound very good. It, it, you're right, it isn't very good. This, this is the realm of Satan and demons and wicked people. And uh, and so Christ comes first to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness. And what, is, what does your Bible say? And he transfers us where? To the kingdom of his beloved son. When, when a person trusts in Christ alone for salvation... Uh, it's as, it's as if God, uh, you know, Jesus, the spiritual lifeguard, looking at drowning humanity in the kingdom of darkness, he jumps off the lifeguard stand into the pool, pulls them up from, from the, the, the drowning, the gasping, uh, moment of spiritual, uh, uh, death, and he pulls us out of the pool and he, he transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's amazing in and of itself because we recognize that what we deserve because of our sin is judgment and destruction. And yet he wonderfully transfers us to a different kingdom. I mean, just, just look, just look around you. Do you want to be a part of this kingdom? I mean, just, just open your eyes and say, what does the kingdom of darkness look like? Just pull out your phone and read Fox News. That's what it looks like. And if you, if you long for justice, if you long for the glory of God to reign, if you long for grace and mercy, if you long for a, a people that loves one another as they would serve and worship their God, that's the kingdom of God. And in case you hadn't noticed, that ain't here. You have to be rescued out of this and transferred to a new kingdom. And and one day we know we will enjoy all of the benefits of that kingdom when our king returns and rights every wrong and puts everything back in order. But it starts by recognizing the need for rescue for the, from the domain of darkness. So that there's a kingdom component to God's rescue plan. Secondly, there's a redemption component to God's rescue plan. You say, what's that? Uh, you need to get the picture here, okay? Each one of these has imagery to it. And that's why meditation on these things is so important. You know, you can read this in about one minute. But you shouldn't just blow through it. Each one of these words has a whole visual that goes with it. Okay, so, so, so talk to me about that word redemption. There, there's a whole uh, visual that goes with that. What does redemption envision? Some of you know this, but th- think with me on this. To buy back, right? Redemption means to buy back. What, what image of society, what, what realm of society does the language come from? From slavery, okay? You familiar with this? 
So, so the picture here is that not only do we come into the world as a citizen of the kingdom of darkness and we need rescue into the kingdom of his beloved son, we come into the world in bondage to sin. Jesus said in the Gospel of John that all those who commit sin actually demonstrate that they are a slave to sin. So slavery is the imagery that should arise in your mind as you hear this redemption language, okay? So so, so picture this. Um, Praise God we don't have slavery in our country anymore. And we'll talk about that next hour. We'll talk about critical race theory. But... um, but the slavery, right? This idea that I, I have been purchased and I belong to a master. And I can't just do whatever I want to do, right? A slave is enslaved to that master. And, and that person must do everything that the master calls them to do. Well, that's the image, right? Not, a, not of, a, uh, of a, a physical master-slave relationship, but we, as we come into this sinful world, as sinful people, we are slaves to what? To sin itself. And, and that's, have you noticed this? Do you remember before Christ and you're like, I know I shouldn't be doing this. Why do I keep doing this? I just do it over and over and over. And you know what? I kind of like it, but I know I shouldn't do it. And you try and you try and you try to stop and you can't stop. We, we, I see this as a counselor. I see this with addictions all the time. People know alcohol is destroying their marriage. They know it's destroying their children. They know it's destroying their, their relationships with other people. They know it's drying up their bank account. They know it's causing them to be unfaithful on the job. They know that. And they keep on drinking. They know that drugs are destroying their life and their brain. They, they, they know that pornography or gambling or whatever, they, they, they know better and they keep on doing it. You say, why would they do that? Because they're a slave. Slavery means, guys, spiritual slavery means we can't stop doing the bad things that we do. You say, wait a minute, well, if we can't stop doing, then how, how does God hold us responsible, right? Aren't we victims? No, no, no. You are responsible slaves. You are fully in bondage. You can't stop. You can't quit. And yet God holds us 100% responsible for every violation of his law that we commit. And that's that's the doctrine of what we call total depravity, or, or it's the doctrine of sin. Even if we know what we're doing is wrong, we can't stop. And so what does God do? That's the word redemption. Redemption means that the Father dispatches Jesus, and Jesus, as it was, goes to the auction block of, slave, of slavery, right? And he sees the sinner there in bondage to a master. He sees you and me in bondage to sin, unable to, to change our ways. And Jesus says, I want that one. And he pays a price to buy that sinner's, that slave's freedom. That's what redemption is. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's kind of neat. We'll see it here in 2 Corinthians. But do you know what the price that Jesus pays in order to buy you and me out of a slavery to sin? What is it? 
he offers his own blood, right? He offers himself. You know it. Uh, uh, what's the verse that says, um, uh, oh no, a pastor's not supposed to do that. Um, to give his life a ransom for many? What's that? That's the end of the verse. How's it start? You're looking at me like, is that in the Bible, Pastor? It's in the Bible somewhere. I know it is, right? Yeah, it is. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That word ransom is is the, the price to buy our redemption. That's what that means. And he's paying his life, his blood, himself as the cost of that. And this, this is, this is worth singing about, isn't it? Listen to our hymnology. Listen to our music. A lot of authors, like a guy named Charles Wesley, you heard of him? He and George Whitfield, his brother John, helped start what we think of as the Methodist movement. Not, not like the Methodist church today. I mean, that, that's where it went. But, but at the time, it was a revival of true gospel ministry. And he wrote, you know, you know the song where he wrote, my chains fell off and my heart was free. Remember that song? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about redemption. And, and, and we need to think about that. We need to think, I would have no hope to overcome these things in my life that I do that are wrong if Jesus didn't rescue me from bondage. Okay, that's number two. There's a third area that the father brings rescue, and that is in the realm of forgiveness. This is rescue from guilt. Look back at the text. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. That's freedom, rescue from bondage. Now look at this, the forgiveness of sin. Now, in this context, Paul's kind of using redemption and forgiveness as synonyms. And that's true. You'll notice in the New Testament, as you read, that often redemption has that specific uh, uh, role of, of the idea of freedom from bondage. Otherwise, it has a general sense of just meaning forgiveness of sin. But this notes another area that we need rescue from, isn't it? Um, you remember, how many of you guys were in James before? Our James study last semester? Um, if anyone keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one part of it, he has become guilty of all. That's the biblical framework. You and I, even if we could keep the whole, and I don't know, I, do you know anybody that's done that? They've kept the whole law and only done, I, I think he's sort of speeding, speaking hypothetically there to make a point. He's saying it only takes one violation of the moral law of God to make you and me guilty of the whole thing. Now, when the Bible talks about guilt, we need, we need to really remind ourselves what that means. Guilt in our culture means I feel bad because of something I did. Guilt is a feeling. Most of the time, when we're talking about guilt in our culture, we're talking about a, a bad feeling, right? When the Bible talks about guilt, it's not talking about the feeling primarily. There might be feelings associated. But when the Bible talks about guilt, it's in the realm of courtroom language. If we went down to the, the Hood County Justice Center and, and we, we pulled up next to Judge Walton there, and Judge Walton was talking about guilt, he would not be meaning that the defendant feels bad necessarily for what they did. They might or they might not. When a judge talks about guilt, what's he talking about? 
judicial, right? It, this, this is uh, legal culpability is what we're talking about here. Legal violation of a law. You, you have The evidence has come in and you have been found guilty, meaning you have violated a, a law or statute. So when the Bible talks about forgiveness, that's what it's referring to. It, it's saying you and I are guilty of breaking the moral law of God. And we are liable to God's eternal punishment for that. Forgiveness, what what does forgiveness mean? We use it so often, but what does it actually mean? Yeah, it's a release from debt. It's a pardon. God says, yes, you're guilty. Yes, you deserve punishment. But I'm going to forgive the debt of punishment that you owe. And you know how that is, right? Let's say we are down at the Hood County Justice Center. Let's say you got a traffic fine and uh, you, you blew down 377 with a shock wave coming off of your truck and, uh, and one of uh, Granbury's finest pulls you over and writes you a ticket. And you stand before the judge and, uh, yeah, judge, I did it, you know, and he said, that's going to be a $300 ticket. Okay. Well, let's say at that moment, that uh, someone walks into the courtroom, pulls out his checkbook, writes a $300 check, and pays the court. What does that mean for you? You're free. You're free to go, right? The debt has been paid. Is, was your guilt real? Yes. Does it mean you don't deserve that punishment? No, it means you do deserve it. But someone else pays your fine. That, that's what forgiveness means. Forgiveness doesn't mean what you did wasn't that bad. Forgiveness doesn't mean you don't deserve punishment. And so many Christians think that, right? That, that, that forgiveness means God says, ah, don't worry about it. Ah, it wasn't that bad. No, no, forgiveness means that at the cost of God's very son, he pays your fine and lets you go free. We need rescue from guilt. And just as a footnote, um, when we talk about guilty feelings, you know, we all struggle with those sometimes, right? You know, things we've done in the past, things we struggle with in the present, that, that, that the, the Bible's answer, the Bible's remedy to the feelings of guilt is the forgiveness that Jesus offers in that true guilt that makes us truly liable to him. I, I, I mean, I'll just I'll say, maybe you're wrestling with something today that you've done. Maybe 20 years ago, maybe last week, and you're just racked with the feeling of guilt. How do you, how do you handle that? You handle that by going to the Savior and saying, will you please forgive me? And on the basis of Jesus' work, as we're reading it here, God will forgive you. Jesus pays your fine and you don't have to carry that guilt anymore. You're free. And you know how many Christians I've talked to that are still walking around with guilt on their shoulders when Jesus has paid the fine? You know, that's like walking out the courthouse going, how am I going to pay this $300? I don't have $300. How am I going to do this when Jesus already signed the check? So will you, will you be encouraged if that's where you're at today that Jesus already paid your fine? You just have to believe and act and live like that's true. 
and stop carrying that guilt around that's already been paid for. So we need rescue from the domain of darkness, right? We need rescue from bondage. We need rescue from guilt. Fourthly, we need reconciliation, and that is rescue from alienation. I mentioned that when when uh, sin came into the world, when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, that broke the relationship between God and people, right? It broke that relationship. And therefore, we need reconciliation. Reconciliation means that two parties whose relationship has been broken, that that, that relationship is restored. And, and we see that uh, in verse uh, 20. Okay, remember I told you he starts with the work of Christ, he ends with the work of Christ, and in the middle is the person of Christ, right? So jump down a few verses to the end of the section in verse 20. He says, through him, the Father, meaning through him, Jesus, His goal here was to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This, if you're wondering, like, what's Christianity all about? If you could put Christianity in a nutshell, what does it teach? It teaches that the creator God who made all people for himself has made way for us to be reconciled back to him through the person and work of Christ. That's the... Rusty, you stretch and you have a question. Uh-huh. You got it right there? You want to read it? You guys familiar with that? Okay. That, 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 is, that is the red-letter text of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. All these things were from God who... Re- Listen to the language that, that Rusty just read who reconciled us to himself through the agency of Jesus. So Jesus comes to to bring God and sinners into reconciliation. That's the Christmas song we sing, right? Hark the herald angels sing. Why are the why are the angels rejoicing in song because God and sinners have been reconciled through the coming of Christ. So reconciliation is the point of the gospel. I mean, I mean, think about this. If you could have your, your debt paid, your sin forgiven, your bondage removed, uh, declared righteous, adopted, all the, if, if you could have all those things, but if that wall, if that spiritual brick wall that separates you from your God is not removed, does it really matter? Right? reconciliation, coming back in relationship with God is the point of Christianity. We we get to have a relationship with God. And so we need rescue from alienation. And that's what he's talking about here, um, that he's made peace through the blood of his cross. You guys know Romans 5, 1, therefore we have peace with God, right? It's not peace with God like, oh, I have all... You know, all my problems are, are, are taken away. He went peace with God, meaning I am no longer God's enemy. He has sent Christ who has done his work, and that changes my relationship from that of an enemy to a friend, from someone who was hostile to God to someone who is now his adopted child in his family. And uh, you know, this is good stuff, isn't it? It's right here. And, and you know, we are bored with Jesus. We yawn at Jesus. We get distracted by other things because we don't think about this enough. And that's Paul's, that's Paul's point. Yes. Yes, ma'am.
Yeah, yeah, re- repentance is part of that exchange. That, that when I'm, when I'm turning from my sin to trust Christ, that, that, that turning action is repentance. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did I not say that? Or maybe just clarify that? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, what Joan is saying is important, and that is that just because Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the dead and, and, and offers to pay my fine, that's not automatic. Right. That, that and, and he's going to he says this explicitly, but it's good to clarify uh, what Joan is saying, that 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 comes when we turn from sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Um, we're not universalist. Right. We, we believe in uh, salvation by faith alone. OK. Uh, and here's that next thing. Uh, peace. This is rescue from hostility. I already kind of alluded to this. Reconciliation is rescue from alienation. Peace means rescue from hostility. Right. It, it's a it's not just a restoration of the relationship. It's a harmony in the relationship. And, and you if you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you had a fight with your spouse. You did. And you kind of come down from it. And. Um, and you're like, you know, yeah, I didn't handle that very well. So you go to your spouse and you say, you know what, when I said those hurtful things, I that was really wrong of me. Will you please forgive me? And your spouse says, yes, I forgive you. And, you know, now that I think about it, I didn't handle myself so well either. I shouldn't have said those things either. Will you forgive me? Yeah, I forgive you. Okay. Well, what's that? That's reconciliation. And then a phenomenon happens that my wife and I have come to affectionately call post-conflict weirdness. <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You're like, we, 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 we did the forgiveness thing, but it's still weird. <laughs> and you know, you can walk in that weirdness for hours or days. And, uh, I just, uh, that, that's normal. It, it's post-conflict weirdness. You say, well, h- how do we overcome that? You start acting like you were before the fight. If you're going to sit down and pop some popcorn and watch a movie, then get the microwave going and get your movie going. If you were in the middle of a house project, get back to your house project. You know, you, you, you start acting like you are really at peace. And as soon, you guys know this because you've done this before. If you just sit around like waiting for something to happen, you're waiting there for hours. The moment you start moving toward your spouse and being proactive in acting like you actually are reconciled, you actually are forgiven, you actually do love them, what happens? Then things start to feel normal again, don't they? And that's why I think Paul makes a distinction here between reconciliation and peace. Reconciliation means the alienation has been restored. But peace means what? We're friends. And we relate to another as friends. We, we love each other as friends. So it's not just reconciliation. It's, it's not just God's not, not angry. It's that he actually says we're at peace with one another. And there's a harmony and a oneness and a friendship in that. Okay? Uh, there is a rescue plan in regard to holiness. This is a rescue from wickedness. Look at verse 21 and 22. And although you were formerly in... Uh, what's that? Verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you, here it is, before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is rescue from wickedness. You say, what is holiness? Holiness is an attribute of God that basically says there is no one like him. 
No one that pure, no one sinless, no one righteous like him. And here's the crazy thing. When God forgives us, when he rescues us in Christ, he, he takes us out of that realm of wickedness. Remember that domain of darkness? He not only transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son, but he does something that's gonna, it's gonna kinda sound weird, but he, he sets us aside for his holy purposes. He, he says, you know how you're living in sin? Yeah, you're not going to do that anymore. You're mine. You will be pure like I am pure. You will be holy as I am holy. You will be useful as I have made you to be useful. You will be righteous as my son is righteous. And he takes us and, and makes us to be holy. And, and, and that comes in two stages. It comes immediately when you first turn and trust Christ for salvation. He snatches you out of that realm of wickedness. He declares you holy. And he treats you as holy. That's stage one. And stage two, he begins a wonderful work of renovation. It's it's like remodeling your house, right? It starts in the kitchen. And then you go, well, if we're going to do that, we've got to repaint. And if we're going to repaint, then we've got to get new flooring. Right, and if we get new flooring, then the lighting just is all wrong. We get new new lights, and and you know, and now our kitchen looks modern, and our living room looks like it's still 1995. So now we need to right, and that that's what sanctification is like. Sanctification that the root word is holy. There, God begins to renovate your heart and life, and at first it may start with obvious big sins, and you're like, I got to change, and then you grow, and God says, No, I want to renovate that area. Okay, go. I want to renovate that area. Okay, and before you know it, He's turning the house of your life upside down. He is making you holy in your practice, as He has already declared you holy in your position before him. And we call that progressive holiness, or sometimes we use the word progressive sanctification, becoming more holy, more like Christ in your actual life. It's quite a rescue plan, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? And uh, we're not done. Next week, we're going to come back and I'm going to talk to you about who Jesus is in terms of how he can do all that. Because there is only one person qualified to rescue you from all of those different threats and dangers and troubles that we possess. And so we'll come back next week and talk about our great King, uh, Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this short journey, uh, reminding us of the work of Christ and, and how we need to think about this. Go on walks and think about this. Think about this in our cars. Think about this while we're getting ready in the morning. Think about this uh, as we go throughout the day. Father, we, we do not want to be bored with Jesus. And I fear that Jesus is not first place because we don't think highly of him. And we don't think highly of him because we don't think about these things. So help us to rehearse these familiar truths and might it just astound us again that we have an incredible Savior. We're thankful for his work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.